1: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I I discuss Contesting Slave Masculinity in the American South with its author, Dr. David Stephan Doddington, Senior Lecturer in North American History at Cardiff University. And Contesting Slave Masculinity is published by our amazing friends at Cambridge University Press. How are you doing today, Professor?
0: I'm doing very well, thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for inviting me on
1: yeah, most definitely. and um, with, with that you know can you talk to us about you know what attracted you to this particular subject?
0: Sure, absolutely. so this is something that I was engaged with from quite an early period of my studies in American history and the history of slavery in particular, and I came to the topic of masculinity and enslaved manhood mainly through the fugitive slave narratives. Reading through this material, you just get such an extraordinary sense of the power of gender and the way in which gender operates in relation to the construction of identities, but also in the context of the politics of the period. And so, when I was reading this material, I was just struck by the sort of the power of these ideas about what it meant to be a man, both on a personal level, but also in in an ideological sense. And it's something that I just took, and I I carried on moving through my master's, onto the PhD, and eventually into the book.
1: Very good. And um, can you talk to us about the sources that you utilize for the project?
0: Sure, so the project is primarily based around the analysis of fugitive slave narratives by individuals like Frederick Douglass, Lewis Clark, Solomon Northup, et cetera. And so I'm interested in looking at the ways in which these authors and formerly enslaved people constructed a life story and constructed their identity as men within the institution of slavery. Thinking about the narratives not just as this uh, subjective self-fashioning, but also as a political document where they're aiming to inspire other people to fight against slavery. Alongside the fugitive narratives, I'm also fascinated by the WPA interviews that are conducted in the 1930s as part of the, uh, the new deal. And these interviews with formerly enslaved people often in their sort of eighties, recalling experiences of slavery and the people who they lived with and loved.
1: And, and, you know, the, the, the WPA narratives are, are really interesting that you uh, deal with. And, um, you know, really, uh, only now started to excavate them, and and they're fascinating treasure troves of of information. Um, you know, can you talk to us a bit about you know, as you're constructing your book, you know, what were some of the challenges that you had along the way of of uh, of completing you know this in, important important study?
0: I think in the context of the WPA interviews, obviously, you're dealing with memories of people who are recalling their their parents, their loved ones, their guardians, other people in the community. So they are constructing an identity that isn't necessarily the identity of the individual in question. It's a recollection, it's a memory, and it's a construction in and of itself. And so trying to use that to speak to the interior lives of these enslaved men is is really quite difficult, and I think you have to be quite cautious as to how you do that. But even if it doesn't provide uh, an individual worldview or a subjective worldview, it does still tell us about the ideas around masculinity that these people fashioned. And the way in which that was translated to their loved ones and to their families, I think, tells us again about the broader significance of gender to people's identities and worldviews. In terms of the fugitive narratives, I think it's this uh, this sort of suturing of fact and fiction that I think Peter uh, Buckner and Castor talk about in their edited collection on uh, enslaved masculinities. That is part of the problem, but also part of the benefit of the source space, the sense that these are constructions that are, of course, lived realities, but they're also speaking to the politics of the period and they're trying to frame their experiences in order to challenge slavery as an institution, to try and inspire other people. And so there are narrative devices and rhetorical strategies that are employed that you have to deal with cautiously and critically.
1: And and as well with that too, um, one of the parts that was really one of the more fun, you know, uh, and fun in the sense of like, you know, my work and you know in, in the space and it being fun for me to, you know, kind of see how other people are doing the work, um, who who are, are you know writing these important studies, um, you know, I, I, I'm always interested in like organization. Um, and so, can you talk to us about um h- how did you organize your book because because you organized it in, in five particular uh, uh spaces right thematic uh, um, organizational principles and so can can you talk to us about not only what those are but why you chose them to 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 organize your text Sure of
0: course so the first chapter on resistant manhood and the oppositional framing of that identity, I think was quite naturally the first chapter, if only because resistance has for so long been this dominant theme in the construction of enslaved manhood and in the broader historiography of the topic. So I think it was only natural to start with that. And then building on the challenges to the idea that resistant manhood was the only route to masculinity, I came upon all of these different examples of enslaved men holding trusty positions as drivers, as foremen. And the fact that this role required a sort of delicate balancing between uh, looking after the interests of members of the community, but also essentially upholding plantation discipline uh, to some degree, worked quite nicely in opposition to the resistant manhood of chapter one. So those two worked quite nicely together. In terms of the Uh, the framing and construction of the book. I also have to give a a thank you to the anonymous readers who actually suggested that I moved the chapters on sexual violence and work around because of the way in which work and its, its sort of framing as industriousness and individual qualities worked quite nicely building from the chapters on drivers. And then the last two chapters were loosely organized around these themes of violence, Uh, and exploitation and so again they worked quite nicely in sort of building towards a conclusion towards the book in the sense of thinking about masculinity as this contested identity so i have to thank the the readers (laughs) and the editors for pushing me in that direction as well
1: yeah uh, oh uh, you you was there i'm sorry did i cut you off there okay um and so with that too um you know uh, the organizing principles are interesting for me because, as you said before, resistance takes up so much space in our, uh, really in our discourse about, you know, blackness and masculinity, um, especially in, in in the context of, of of enslaved people, right? And so, you know, a couple episodes ago, I had um, Dr. Thomas Foster about his uh, a book on enslaved men and, and uh, sexual violation. Um, and, and so, you know, reading both of your books, you know, kind of at the same time, we're just it, it, you could probably imagine it was a uh, it was very interesting on, on my part seeing like you know two books being published around the same time and you know seeing the particular conversations that are going on, um, and also specifically looking towards how, and and this is an actual question: How did enslaved men seek to, um, I guess, survive? Right, because I'm reading this other book, uh, Surviving Slavery in the British Caribbean. Um, from from uh, Dr. Brown at uh, at, uh, at Xavier, and so you know, it makes me think about like how did how in your text did you uh, excavate if, if at all? Um, how enslaved men attempted to survive, I guess, in, in, within the context of slavery, um, in the very many in various ways.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's it's really interesting because I I've just recently had some correspondence with Dr. Brown. And read one of his articles on drivers. Again, different context, but the general framework uh, of survival, not necessarily in opposition to resistance, but as something that is quite different, I think, comes across in his work and also mine. And so I think there is this broader shift in the historiography of thinking about survival as something that is not necessarily as, as I don't want to use the word heroic because that's not, it's not about making judgments, but the sense that survival can be quite brutal. It can be quite individualistic and it can be doing what is necessary to keep oneself or one's family or one's loved ones uh, in the face of wider oppression. And that doesn't necessarily breed collective or mutual support. Sometimes it is a more brutal process when we think about survival. And I think it's it's something that is really difficult to talk about because again, there is a longing to find solidarity and support in these situations and these systems of oppression. But the tragedy of of slavery is that it is so brutal, that it is so violent that people make choices and adapt as best they can. And I think that's something that is coming to the fore in more studies on the topic.
1: And 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 yeah, like to me, I think about it also in in the context of. you know, you you have someone like, and I was reading this uh, getting ready for the interview. You know, a lot of times we think about um, uh, David Walker and David Walker's appeal, and um, and then you have um, uh, Henry uh, Reverend Henry Highland Garnett, who you know famously had his was in eighteen forty three uh, or somewhere somewhere in the eighteen forties with uh, with his address to the slaves. Um, you know, one was an enslaved person and one wasn't, right? And, and so, it, how, how you know? So, so someone like Garnett plays a, I would say, a very major part in your in your book too. Um, can you talk about? Can you talk to us about his role in in your text and you know specifically you know some of some of his particular exploits too? Because, you know he he's a figure that not everyone uh, I think uh, knows that, that are listening to this interview.
0: Yeah, in terms of the individual biography, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not able to give a huge amount of extra detail on the topic. I think about. Garnet as part of this broader abolitionist politics and the debates over the strategies for resistance and survival. And so obviously recognising that his appeal is is not taken up, it's furiously debated, and there are tensions over what is the best strategy and what is the best message to provide to enslaved people. And obviously, you know, they're, they're doing this in the North, they're not doing it while enslaved. And so the messages that they are constructing don't necessarily speak to the very real lived experiences of enslaved people who, 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 you know, again, make choices to survive. And so when you have these calls to, to resist even in the face of death, not all people are willing to do that because they have these familial bonds. They have these connections and communities that they want to keep to uphold and so there are these incredibly difficult choices that they make and the broader politics around abolitionism and resistance is something that I'm just fascinated by and I think Garnett and Walker are absolutely part of that discourse.
1: Yeah and and, and going back to resistance too um, I guess a more of a historiographic uh, question um, especially like I said you know we have folks on the New Books and African American Studies channel um, who who you know or who are not academics so they they're maybe not steeped in the particular uh, uh knowledge of the debates and such but um why has resistance taken up so much space and and why is it that not only resistance but a particular form of resistance um in in the context of of, of slavery and its implications for right, the subject of you know, black masculinity during the time of enslavement and specifically contested uh, uh, slave masculinity too.
0: So I think it goes a long way back to these broader historiographical battles that you can locate from the, the sort of the, the basically racist historiography that dominated the early 20th century, which more or less claimed that enslaved people accepted slavery. They were contempt, It was benevolent, thinking here about the work of people like Orish B. Phillips, Uh, And so this this sort of image of slavery as a benevolent institution was furiously rejected by historians in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think part and parcel of that was showing that enslaved people fought against their oppression in in a multitude of different ways. And I think it's often easy to caricature the historiography and resistance and say it was always about fight or flight. But I think a, a massive component of this revisionist historiography was saying that it's about building communities, that it's about culture, that it's about the support networks that enslaved people created that were separate from the the will of enslavers, that they were able to do this to survive, to adapt, and to think about that as resistance. And I think that historiography from the 70s has played a, a huge role in shaping the way in which historians think about the topic. But of course, it also led to more challenges because a lot of the 70s work more or less wrote women out of the picture. And so again, you see this this sort of back and forth in these developments in the historiography where positioning culture and community and familial life as resistance allowed historians to show the role enslaved women played in fighting slavery, in forging these networks and these bonds of survival.
1: And and as well, um, I was I interviewed uh, Dr. Neil Roberts about um, an edited volume he had about um, the political, you know, I think it was a political philosophy of um, Frederick Douglass, and he talked about the, um, the how how friendships, you know, we we don't really talk about uh, a lot of times within you know this particular context of black black men and, and friendships and, and what that meant as far as you know, how you can, how you can excavate, um, uh, uh, potential resistance through friendship. Um, and and so, you know, do do you talk about that and, and have any, um, you know, any thoughts on that particular, because that wasn't something I had planned to to ask, but your, your, you know, your discussion, you know, kind of signposted other thoughts that I had, uh, prior to reading your book about, uh, friendships to black masculinity within the, the context of of uh, uh of the american south and slavery
0: sure so this is something that i think sergio Lissana does really well in his book band of brothers have you
1: have you had a chance to look at that one no no i haven't so i'm I'm writing that down
0: excellent yeah so it's a very interesting position to be in because sergio is very much focused on friendship and solidarity among enslaved people and Mine is more about the exclusionary nature of some of these friendships. So I think it's absolutely right to highlight friendship and support networks. But I'm also interested that building these networks of solidarity also often meant excluding others and thinking about the way in which communities are built on as much exclusion as they are inclusion and thinking, for example, about Douglas's Band of Brothers. Right, These are people that he chose and he, he wanted to resist slavery with. But that was by nature an exclusionary affair. There were only certain people he could trust. There were only certain people he felt were able and willing to take that risk. And so these friendships are absolutely vital for enslaved men and and for enslaved women and enslaved people in general. But it's not just a, a single thing. It's not just a friendship that spans the entire slave community. There are choices that people make about who to ally with, about who to trust and who couldn't be trusted. But Sergio's work is, I think, fantastic in framing ideas of black masculinity and enslaved manhood in the context of friendship and community. So well worth a read.
1: Well, hey, there we go. Not only are we interviewing people about their books, but are providing very, very awesome and useful uh, book suggestions. I'm all for it. I am all for it. Um, yeah,
0: we both work at the uh, relatively the same time, actually, and supervised by the same person. So it's it's an interesting
1: conundrum that we both work on this topic. Well hey, there you go. Shout, shout out uh and that, now you got your you did your graduate work where? I was at the University of Warwick. That's what I thought. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, hey, y'all y'all are doing some real good over there. So i uh, got got glad we got them on the podcast too, so so we can highlight them. Um and, and, and as well, you know, um going a little further, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, we as writers, historians, authors we have an initial thought on a book or or on a topic that we're writing about, and then it changes, maybe, um, or we encounter surprises. Um, so, so in the spirit of that, can you talk to us about as the chronicler of this particular history? Um, were do, were there any areas of of your writing process or research process that you know surprised you? A, potentially about maybe a preconceived notion that was that was dropped or you know you know something to that degree were there any surprises for you
0: i think less so in terms of the surprises but more in terms of the process of turning it from the phd into the book okay was quite a interesting transition i thought because when i was writing the phd i was more or less just interested in looking at these different models of masculinity and and essentially saying that they existed, right? that there were different ways of being a man in slavery. But I don't really think I did a lot more than that. And as I started transitioning towards the book and thinking in slightly more ambitious terms, it was about saying, right, so how does this change our understanding of resistance? Or how does this fit into broader debates over accommodation, solidarity, and survival? And it was recognizing that what I was looking at was embedded within the broader politics and the dynamics of enslavement in the relationships between not only enslaved people, but also enslavers and enslaved. And I think it was this sense of moving from just noting these models of masculinity to saying, okay, this tells us something about the institution of slavery. This tells us something more about how we can think about resistance, solidarity, and survival. And that's something that took place over a number of years, really, and it's also something that took place in conversation with with the press, in fact, who really encouraged me to engage with these debates in a bit more direct fashion. And I think some of that is from, you know, reticence of being a relatively junior figure and, and trying to get involved in these debates and being told, okay, you, you need to say something a bit bolder. You need to be willing and able to engage in this in order to sell a book, in order to interest. Readers, and that's I think the thing that I found most, I guess, surprising. Yeah, I guess, surprising that I was willing and able to do this.
1: No, and and you know that that particular point that you bring up about uh, your your press, Cambridge University Press, telling you to be bold, um, and it's interesting too. Uh, you know they. Uh, published masterless men from, uh, Dr. Carrie Merritt too. So, which, which I I will definitely say is uh, a part of this, uh, ambitious, uh, uh, a group as well. So, you know, you're, you're in good company, um, in, in that particular way. Um, but, but I guess as well, um, how does, how does this book um, inform your teaching as well, because I'm always interested, um, as a, as a public historian, how does your, how, how does your, uh, published work inform like what you're teaching at, you know, at, at Cardiff and, and, and maybe in the community and, and in your particular travels, um, and talking about the book. So, so if you could talk about that, that, that would be, that would be tremendous.
0: Sure. So I teach a couple of classes at Cardiff. I'm I'm currently on leave, so no teaching is going on. But uh, I teach a special subject which is driven by primary source analysis that is entitled Slavery and Slave Life in North America. And it's a course that's sort of split into two parts. The first section deals with the broad chronology and development of slavery in North America. It talks about the origins, the expansion, entrenchment, and eventual destruction of slavery. And the second part of the course is a more thematic uh, assessment of enslaved life and slave communities. And that's where I think my research builds into that area, because what we look at are the communities that enslaved people crafted, about the relationships that they forged with one another. And so thinking about you know, slave narratives, thinking about WPA testimonies as providing a window into these areas of slave life is something that comes from my published research and into my teaching there. And it's something which students are just absolutely fascinated by. And the broader relevance of slavery to contemporary politics and the legacies and, the, and the sort of the horrific injustices that are still connected to it make this topic just absolutely vital to be teaching on
1: and in and, and as well too right so so you're so you're in the the u k and it makes me think about um you know going back to the surprises bit as uh, as well are any like as you teach this subject to your students, are they ever you know surprised like oh shoot i didn't you know i didn't know that or you know c- can you talk about that as well and and teaching i guess in a in the in a different location from where the history occurred? or at least that particular history, you know, North American.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's something that I'm increasingly interested in in my own pedagogy and the way I teach, in that I do sometimes wonder whether this focus on slavery in North America and slavery in the U.S. is potentially a way of, of not thinking about the legacies of slavery uh, for, for Britain and thinking about the Caribbean. And so I'm increasingly trying to incorporate slavery in the Americas, and thinking about the hemispheric dimensions of this study uh, in my teaching, I think a lot of them are most interested in the gendered elements. Which you know, maybe I'm just reading into that because I want them to to be interested in that. But I think I think in particular studying about the ways in which enslaved women resisted is something which continually amazes a lot of the students. And thinking about the violence that is practiced on enslaved women in terms of the reproductive exploitation, but also the reproductive resistance is something that really, it demands attention and it really does catch the attention of the students. And that's something that we constantly come up against, thinking about the roles enslaved women played in the community, thinking about the violence they faced, but also thinking about the ways in which they resisted. But more broadly, yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in opening up um, my teaching to this, to a more hemispheric Field of study, trying to think about the ways in which looking at slavery in the American in, in the United States is sometimes perhaps just a convenient way of not forgetting, but maybe uh, minimizing slavery in the British context.
1: Right, and 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 you know, you talk about the reproductive resistance. I think about um, Dr. Sasha Turner's recent uh, work, um, contested bodies, and obviously going back uh, to the early two thousands with uh, Dr. Jennifer Morgan's uh, laboring women um, as well, among uh, so many others, right? And you, you have, uh, in your acknowledgements, uh, Dr. Donna Ramey Berry and, uh, Dr. Uh, Leslie Harris too. So, you know, you, you definitely, um, are, are in good company when it comes to these particular conversations. Um, can, you know, and it's, and it's interesting too, right? So it's, uh, 2019, which is, you know, the 1619 is, you know, we're almost at the date, right? So today is, um, the 16th is the day that we're recording and the 20th is in a couple of days, you know, of when quote unquote North American or obviously it's not North American. But, you know, you, you know, the we love we love shiny numbers. We love 400, 500 like these. Right. Um, but clearly we know. And, you know, Africans and enslaved Africans were in the Americas well beforehand, Um so you know, how you know? I guess how does even that chronology? You know, how, how do you think about that particular chronology? Is um, is well because I'm sure that you know there are conversations over there about it too.
0: Yeah, I've been following all of the commemorations and the publications and the Twitter debates that have been going on over the use of the specific labeling of 1619, and of course, as you say, it's it's massively problematic because it's it's. It's not not necessarily ignoring, but there is this much longer history of slavery, not only in the Americas, but also thinking about the Atlantic world, thinking about the sort of Portuguese voyages down the West African coast, thinking about Tome and Principe. And I think, as you say, there is often a sense that this number we fixate on because it allows us to, to make something real, to make something legible. And it's a way of erasing sometimes the much messier and complex histories of a particular process or a particular system of oppression like slavery in the atlantic world and one of the things that's been really interesting is is sort of some of the ways in which 1619 is framed as an american date when of course if you if, you know we're thinking about the colonies here we're thinking about a british atlantic world and i think the way in which 1619 is being reported in the uk is, is sometimes subsuming the the british context there and that's something that we definitely have to think about and that's something that was brought up by by Christiana Freira, who's who's at the University of Liverpool uh, and now at Goldsmith. But she brought that up, and I thought it's a really important point.
1: Yeah, and and I think you know it's it's a very important point because we have to never forget, you know, the you know if it, like if you want to say Virginia is so much a part of the country, right, because of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. You know, Kentucky was brought out of it. Uh, uh, West Virginia was brought out of it and and, and so like Virginia has this, this particular importance so like it, I would always say like if you t- want to talk about 1619 in, in the context of like the importance of Virginia to the the nation um, because Robert E. Lee is you know part of this Custis Washington uh, family so right you connect that to you know the mid 19th century and going forward right with Charlottesville and all these different things with United the Right and so you know, you can make that connection back to 1619, right? But that does not mean like I'm from Florida, right? I, I was born and raised in Florida, and my family's from the Carolinas. They were in, they were Africans who were there well before, as early as what 1526 um, in in uh, coastal, like it was it coastal Georgia, South Carolina? So, you know, it, it's it's arbitrary, uh, but it's it, it's arbitrary with something that takes up a lot of space. You know, look at the New York Times magazine.
0: And I think part of it is it's always difficult because you, you do sometimes have to put a number on things. And as long as you acknowledge the complexity and the messiness of it, I don't never—I don't invariably see it as a problem, but it's, it's just when it becomes this public figure and it becomes appropriated and it becomes set in stone. And I think sometimes as historians we really struggle to articulate that complexity uh, because it doesn't fit into neat public you know, short newspaper articles or, or a big project that catches the attention. You know, if, if you're just sitting there as a historian, going, "It's it's a bit more complicated than that. It's it's a really difficult sell." And I think that's something that we are all coming to terms with now. How best to articulate the complexity of the past, the sheer messiness of these these stories, these memories, these legacies? And I think that's something that we're definitely seeing. And on Twitter, it's incredible. You know, every now and again, there's these articles come out saying historians aren't doing anything in the public. And you look on Twitter, and and historians are doing this every day. They're fighting this fight every day. And so it's something that I think Twitter has really allowed for an explosion of this.
1: Right, right, one hundred percent. All you got to. Well, I'll make the claim even more specific. Uh, uh you know you look at the economist over the past uh decade you know and and obviously highlighting uh w- you know what they said about uh, uh doctor uh edward uh baptist and, and his book um have has never been told from you know uh, years back and uh they're you know they had to retract stuff and then you know they're they're a major purveyor um uh, of that particular myth and so yeah it's it's uh um, it's intellectual diarrhea uh it just keeps running just keeps running, and you don't know when it's gonna end there's an image <laughs> yes sorry listeners did 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 mean all that, but you know it, you know hey you know gotta make a plan as Malcolm x would say um <laughs> there we go um and so you know in, in the short time that we have left with you you know we you know, we always like to know uh you know we've obviously had a tremendous, uh, 31 minutes and 20 seconds with you. Uh, but we also are, you know, a little greedy. We also would like to know, uh, uh, when we can maybe expect you again, uh, uh for, for, for another bit of work that you're doing. So, uh, so, so, so what you're working on, uh, what's, uh, what's next for you, um, going forward in your career.
0: So I've just started a new project, in fact, that is being very generously funded by the, the Leverhulme Trust in the UK. And this is a project that's, in, that's entitled Old Age and American Slavery. And it's something that actually came out of this project, more or less, because when I finished the book, I came up with these examples and I found these uh, these testimonies dealing with enslaved men who were considered too old to fight or were men who suffered violence at the hands of younger men. And it led me to think about moments of intergenerational tension. And it led me to thinking about the way in which enslaved people dealt with elders in their community and the position that they held not only in the community but also in the broader politics of slavery. Because obviously for for paternalistic, you know, paternalistic and in, in sort of bunny ears here, you know, enslavers, they, they love to use the image of the elderly slave as being emblematic of their benevolence and their support. But in the slave narratives and in the WPA testimony, it's, it's a story of, of desolation, of exploitation. And so I wanted to think about the way in which enslaved elders not only operate as this political strategy and this, this political um, image, but also the lived realities of growing old in slavery. And so that's really what I'm looking at in this context here. And I've just sort of finished an article looking at old age in the context of resistance which I'm hoping to send off relatively soon, but probably needs a fair bit of tweaking. But the broader project is so thinking about old age as lived experience and old age as political symbol in the context of slavery.
1: That is fascinating. That is like ultimately so fascinating because I think about, you know, you're you're always taught as a Southern black kid, um, you know, got to respect your elders, you know, you know and, and it seeps into, you know, uh, like, like when professors be like, you know, oh, just call me, just call me my first name. I'm like, you want to, you want me to do what? You want me to do what? Because it's this, you know, ingrained, um, a uh, sense of uh, reverence and, and honor um as well and 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 also to a certain degree you know, professional uh, uh longevity too uh, because you you call someone the wrong thing and yeah you know you it might not be good <laughs> you know, might not get that, uh, that that good review um as they say um and so your your work sounds sounds incredible um so 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 congratulations to you uh for 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 that particular honor and, and the and the funding as as well and uh you know we we definitely look forward Uh, to the next time that we'll have you um, on new books in African-American studies. And um, if if folks are uh, interested in um, contacting you and any questions about the book, um, how how can they reach you?
0: So the best way would be through my work email address, which is doddingtond.cardiff.ac.uk. And I'd be happy to take any inquiries, questions or queries, hopefully not hate mail.
1: Right. We, uh we, we, uh, come on, y'all. We ain't going to do that. We're, we're, we're a beloved community over here, right? Uh, <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> what was that?
0: I've seen too much of Twitter.
1: Uh, yeah. Touche. Touche on that one, my friend. Touche. <laughs> those, those, uh, those bots and those trolls are, are, uh, ruthless. Oh, more power to the, the people who do that every day. I mean, the historians who do it are just incredible. They really do fight the good fight. Amen. 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 And so listening audience, once again, we have had the amazing, amazing, amazing honor to have um we, we have senior lecturer in North American history at Cardiff University, Dr. David Stephens Doddington, for his amazing book published by our friends at Cambridge University Press entitled Contesting Slave Masculinity in the American South. And um, once again, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil uh, of the channel. And um, please rate us, review us, you know, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, um, because we really love, you know, uh, engaging with the public, you know, as a historian, you know, historians do these things. And so, um, you know, please let us know how we're doing uh, just so that we know uh, and and can be held accountable as well to to, to y'all because, you know, We not only work on behalf of the authors and the publishers, but we also want to make sure that y'all are well, too. And so once again, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil, reporting live from uh, Cherokee, North Carolina, New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil, over and out.